most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, May 26th, 2022, the 491st day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Before we get started today, as always, I must remind you about the great American patriot, Mike Lindell, and his great American manufacturing company, MyPillow. You can go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code REASONABLE, and get up to 60% off items all across the store. When you order, you will get the free gift of Mike Lindell's book. So make yourself more comfortable, your feet, your bed, your home, your life, and you will be supporting this show. You'll be supporting... Mike Lindell, and you will be supporting American manufacturing. MyPillow.com, promo code REASONABLE. Now, I want to make sure to extend a big thank you to everybody who has been subscribing for paid memberships on Substack or donating elsewhere. You guys are hugely helpful in me being able to continue to produce this show every day and put in the hours required to be able to do that. So thank you. Thank you. I hope people are enjoying receiving more content via Substack. I don't want to bomb your email all day long, but Substack seems to be turning itself into some kind of social media oriented site. It's kind of like Facebook almost, but without a friends list. They've made it a lot easier to share a variety of content. So I'm going to continue posting there. I think you can probably change your email settings if the emails are annoying you. What you can definitely do is get the Substack Reader app. I know they have one in the Apple Store. I assume they have one in the Google Store or wherever people who don't have Apple get apps. But if you have that, you can set it up to receive notifications on that app and then you won't get them via email. If you turn the email notifications off, problem solved. As I said the other day, I think that I probably will be switching to make my podcast exclusive to Substack and exclusive to paid members on Substack, and then maybe open it up so that it's free to everyone within a day or so after the podcast. And that's been something that I've always steered away from, but I have been doing this for two years now for very little money, and it is not practical for me to continue going on into the future, continuing to do this for less than it costs me to live. That said, if you've been a supporter, if you've been following on Telegram for a long time, I will figure out ways to make sure you still get the podcast because I don't want to exclude anybody. I know that 
financial times are hard for many, many, many of us. So unless you started listening to the show yesterday, you'll know that I have been saying masks and lockdowns don't work at the end of every episode for probably two years, maybe not quite that entire time. But I have always been very adamant about masks only being a system of social control and a system of demoralization. They do not prevent the spread of an airborne virus. They have not helped to keep us safe and healthy. They have not prevented anyone from getting COVID, and they certainly haven't prevented anyone from dying. And we know that they have a massive downside, both physically and emotionally, and it has been the worst on the very youngest of us and also the people who are already having mental issues from the atomization of our society and the inability to connect with other humans. And of course, all of that was by design. This is from the National Pulse today, Natalie Winters. Mask mandates caused more COVID deaths, study alleges. Mask mandates cause higher COVID-19 death rates, according to the bombshell claims made in a new medical journal report analyzing fatality rates across the state of Kansas. The observational study, the Fogan effect, a mechanism by which face masks contribute to the COVID-19 case fatality rate, was published in the journal Medicine in February 2022, authored by German doctor Zacharias Fogan. The paper analyzed whether mandatory mask use influenced the case fatality rate in Kansas during the time period of August 1st, 2020 to October 15th. Kansas was used for comparison because the state allowed each of its 105 counties to decide whether or not to implement mask mandates, with 81 counties deciding against the measure. The most important finding from this study is that contrary to the accepted thought that fewer people are dying because infection rates are reduced by masks, this was not the case, summarized the paper. Results from this study strongly suggest that mask mandates actually caused about 1.5 times the number of deaths or about 50% more deaths compared to no mask mandates. The study also posited a potential reason for the disparity in risk ratio for dying from COVID-19. A rationale for the increased risk ratio by mandating masks is probably that virions that enter or those coughed out in droplets are retained in the face mask tissue. And after quick evaporation of the droplets, hypercondensed droplets or pure virions, virions not inside a droplet, are reinhaled from a very short distance during inspiration. Dubbed the Fogan effect, the theory suggests that COVID-19 virions spread because of their smaller size deeper into the respiratory tract. They bypass the bronchi and are inhaled deep into the alveoli, where they can cause pneumonia instead of bronchitis, which would be typical of a virus infection. These findings suggest that mask use might pose a yet unknown threat to the user instead of protecting them, making mask mandates a debatable epidemiologic intervention, concludes the paper. The study also follows another recently published analysis of international data showing the same relationship between COVID-19 and masks. So this is not just another masks don't work article. Science has known that for a hundred years. 
And this is proof not only of the negative effect, but it provides the mechanism that would explain that negative effect. And in layman's terms, it sounds like the mask forces the wearer to more deeply breathe in and consume the viral particles. And I would not be the least bit surprised if they actually knew this prior to recommending mask wearing. So let's shift to vaccines. Naomi Wolf has made some pretty amazing appearances on War Room in the last couple of days. Actually, the last few weeks, honestly. Every one of her appearances it has been pretty mind-blowing because she and her organization, DailyClout.io, with the War Room audience, have put together a group of volunteers who are reading through the Pfizer documents and finding out exactly what was known by Pfizer, by the FDA, by our medical experts since the beginning. And she has been highlighting the last couple of days the effects of the quote unquote vaccine on pregnant women and babies. And she has been referencing work by a woman named Etana Hecht, who published this on Substack, and it's republished on dailyclout.io. Vaccinated women and babies in more danger than ever. The topic of pregnant and nursing moms getting vaccinated under encouragement and coercion is painful. It's painful to research, painful to write about, and painful to learn how carelessly the most precious among us are being treated. The very essence of life and nature live within pregnant and nursing mothers. Reflecting on how little regard was paid to that life is upsetting, and everything I have to report in this post is done with a heavy heart, and I hope that we'll get through this with a renewed sense of personal autonomy when it comes to medical decisions. Notes to keep in mind. The FDA and Pfizer actively worked to keep this data hidden from sight for our lifetimes. Academic institutions, medical institutions, and public health agencies are all still recommending that pregnant women take the COVID-19 vaccines as a precaution against COVID. And it really is important to remember that they wanted these documents hidden for 75 years. You can imagine the promises made by pharma, by the FDA, by all of these organizations. This information is never going to come out. We're going to keep it hidden for 75 years. Let's just push ahead. They were all okay with that. Now listen to what Naomi Wolf's group has found. Dr. Naomi Wolf, project manager Amy Kelly, and the War Room Daily Clout Pfizer Documents volunteer research team have uncovered so many new important pieces of information that it's getting difficult to keep up. I highly recommend pinning Daily Clout to your homepage and checking their updates often. Their team of thousands of volunteers, including hundreds of lawyers, is working quickly, thoroughly, and efficiently. A lot of information and serious concerns have emerged surrounding pregnant and nursing mothers and the possible effect that the COVID-19 vaccines are having on their babies. Dr. Naomi Wolf has been appearing on War Room regularly to provide us with updates on the findings of her and her team. On one appearance last week, Dr. Wolf broke down some of the main red flags that have emerged with the help of a female physician who studied the data. Pregnant women were excluded from clinical trials when they were declared safe and effective for pregnant women. 
Pfizer, the FDA, the CDC, the entire medical community and your local employer who declared that you couldn't come to work if you're not vaccinated have concluded that this was safe and effective for pregnant women based on trials that were done on rats in France. There have not been any human clinical trials that have been concluded by Pfizer or other pharmaceutical companies to find out if these vaccines are safe for use during pregnancy or breastfeeding. There is currently one that's still active, has posted no results, and won't conclude until July 2022. The animal studies that were conducted for the trial that the NIH based their conclusions on included 44 rats and were done over a period of 42 days. There are two main issues with this study. This doesn't fulfill the requirement to ensure that the drug will do no harm to the next generation. And the doctors conducting the trial have all either been employed by or owned shares of Pfizer or BioNTech. There was an attempt to hide this fact by using their initials instead of full names on the study. And she cites their conflict of interest statement that says CJB, NRC, GDC, SNC, MWC, CMR, RS are currently employed by and hold stock in Pfizer Incorporated. CL and JD are currently employed by and hold stock in BioNTech SE. MB is currently employed by Charles River Laboratories. So the industry is studying itself. All emergency use authorization excludes pregnant women. Okay. So the COVID shot, the experimental gene therapy, use on pregnant women is not included in the emergency use authorization. Pregnant and nursing mothers were not allowed to participate in phases one, two, and three of human clinical trials. They were included on a list of 21 conditions that were not allowed to be recruited for trials. The Department of Defense data is showing that female soldiers are having an astronomical rate of abnormalities and fetal problems. Note, Matthew Crawford of Rounding the Earth Substack has stated that he does not believe any of the DOD data is reliable as it's been demonstrably tampered with. Having said that, there are whistleblowers on the ground who corroborate that the rates of a variety of serious medical issues have indeed skyrocketed in 2021. And we have discussed that DOD data on the podcast before. Daniel Horowitz at Breitbart, if I'm not mistaken, has done quite a bit of good work on the DOD data. And there were also those panels that Ron Johnson hosted where some of those whistleblowers testified about the data and what they had observed in the Pfizer documents that were released. Thanks to legal force. There is data on reported adverse events since the rollout of the vaccine on pages 12 and 13 of the document labeled post marketing experience. Dr. Wolf's team five found 28% of the 270 pregnancies plus four fetus baby cases of adverse events were categorized as serious, including miscarriages, fetal deaths, uterine contractions, preterm deliveries, premature rupture of membranes, fetal growth restrictions. Breastfed babies were reported to have effects such as infantile vomiting, fever, rash, agitation, allergy to the vaccine. 
Four nursing women reported adverse events such as partial paralysis, suppressed lactation, breast milk discoloration, breast pain, and migraines. The document concludes that no serious adverse events have been detected. Dr. Wolf again questions whether we, as citizens of the United States of America, must begin to consider if all these signs put together point to a serious national security breach. She has never seen anything as bad as what we're seeing today in her 30 years of journalism. On May 17th, Dr. Wolf reappeared on War Room shortly after the FDA and the CDC authorized the Pfizer COVID-19 booster for 5 to 11-year-olds. In this segment, Dr. Wolf revealed some new information about data on the vaccine for pregnant and nursing mothers. In Scotland, there is an investigation happening right now that was triggered by a threshold that was crossed regarding the number of neonatal deaths. It is double the baseline amount, and this is the second time in seven months that the rate triggered an investigation. And I wonder how that aligns with the booster cycle. Contrary to BBC claims, partially funded by Pfizer, that the rise in neonatal deaths cannot be connected to the vaccine, Dr. Wolf's team, specifically project manager Amy Kelly, has found conclusive evidence to the contrary in Pfizer's own documents. Pfizer defined exposure to the vaccine as breastfeeding. I think that that should probably be reversed. Pfizer is listing breastfeeding as a means of exposure to the vaccine. That means the baby is being exposed to the vaccine via breastfeeding. This was not disclosed to pregnant women. A research team in Germany has confirmed to Dr. Wolf that breast milk can deliver elements of the vaccine. A baby born to a vaccinated mother died after being born bleeding from the nose and mouth. A mother received her second vaccine dose on March 17th, and within 24 hours, her breastfed infant developed a rash and became inconsolable. The baby died two days later with evidence of liver damage and rare blood disorder. The history of the claims of safety and efficacy regarding the COVID-19 vaccines for pregnant and nursing mothers will hopefully result in individuals who will be held criminally liable. Daily Clout's expert Team 5 research team has reported some alarming numbers from Pfizer's documents regarding missing information. In one group of 270 pregnancies, there were, quote, no known outcomes for 238 of the cases. That leaves us with 36 known outcomes. Of those 36 known outcomes, 28 babies died before or at birth. It would be really helpful to know the outcome of the remaining 238 cases. March 2021, 50 participants in a clinical trial reported becoming pregnant, with some of them subsequently being dismissed from the trials. Cindy Weiss of the Daily Clout found that those 50 women have still not had their profiles updated to include pregnancy outcomes. In the same March 2021 document, we can see that Pfizer themselves admits the following. Available data are insufficient to inform vaccine-related risks in pregnancy. Adverse effects from the vaccine on a breastfed child are a possibility. That's in the Pfizer documents known in March 2021. July 2021, in Waterloo, Ontario, between the months of January to July 2021, there were 86 babies who were born dead, otherwise known as stillbirths. The baseline rate is usually five to six per year. 
One brave MP named Rick Nichols raised the issue in a parliamentary session with great concern and passion. In response, the Minister of Health gave the answer we're all used to. The vaccine is safe and effective. Just to note, there was no noticeable rise in stillbirths in 2020, the year of COVID. September 2021. Scotland launched its first investigation into an abnormal spike in newborn baby deaths that was triggered by surpassing a threshold in infant deaths that hadn't been seen since the 1980s. Note, this spike did not occur in 2020, the year of COVID. August 2021. NPR reported on a survey out of the University of Chicago to investigate reports of changes in menstrual cycles after the vaccine. They received 140,000 responses. October 2021, VARES looks like this, and they show the instances of miscarriage post-vaccine just rising and rising and rising. I ran my own VARES report using only a few pregnancy-related keywords. The list is 769 events long, and she adds a screenshot of the first page of those results. December 2021. IVF clinics reported unusual issues after the mass vaccination campaign began. Steve Kirsch covered it thoroughly, and she links that. January 2022, NIH funded a study that was released that reported a slight causal relationship between the COVID-19 vaccines and a lengthier menstrual cycle. February 2022, an EU health agency announced an investigation between COVID-19 and disruptions in menstrual cycles based on reports coming in. Josh Gutskow reported on data from Rambam Hospital in Haifa, Israel. Vaccinated mothers were experiencing spontaneous abortions, miscarriages, and stillbirths at a rate that's 34% higher than their unvaccinated counterparts. March 2022, a second investigation was launched in Scotland due to the high rate of infant deaths, totaling 18 for the month of March. After spending days reading reports about the horrible negative effects on fertility that are coming out in droves, I had to at least try and get some sort of response from Pfizer. After sitting on hold for a while, a gentleman named Ron got on the line. When I asked if the COVID-19 vaccine is safe for a pregnant woman to take, he read me the entire safety warning from Pfizer's website. I then told him that I know many women who have had serious disruptions to their menstrual cycle, as well as numerous women who experienced miscarriages late term, shortly after getting one of the Pfizer vaccines. I asked him what he knows about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine, given all the new information that's come out of the FOIA requests. He responded that he can pass me along to his managers, but first he has to read another statement, this time from the CDC. He proceeded to verbally read it for 10 minutes while I waited patiently. When he finished, surprised that I was still on the line, he asked if I had any more questions. I said yes and asked if he wanted to be a whistleblower. He said he noted my response and passed me along to Olivia, which was pretty much a repeat of the first conversation. I left contact information with both of them, but somehow I highly doubt we'll get a response. I did note to both of them that should they want to get on the right side of this scandal and begin to help those who are suffering, they should do so before the entire thing crumbles down. We are now in May 2022. The claims of safety and efficacy don't match their own internal documents that they tried to hide for 75 years. Yet academic institutions and public health agencies continue to insist it's recommended for pregnant women to receive COVID-19 vaccines and boosters. Until when? Until the wave of misery gets so large that it's no longer deniable? 
No one is coming to save us. Groups like the Daily Clout, VSRF, America's Frontline Doctors, Children's Health Defense, and ICANN are sources of inspiration that there are still good men out there, as well as a source of hope that through their strength and efforts, we'll come out on the other side of this with some integrity still left in some medical professionals. And that, I believe, is highly doubtful. Now, Naomi Wolf also mentioned on War Room that in their review of these documents, in addition to the dangers and the transmission via breastfeeding, it has also caused women's breast milk to be discolored, which they noted in the article. But she said it was discolored blue and green. Okay, not like off white, not slightly darker or slightly lighter than normal, although I'm sure that there are those instances too. blue and green. She also noted that one of the methods for potential transmission of the vaccine exposure to the vaccine is sexual contact. It was in Pfizer's documents. It has always been in Pfizer's documents. The vaccine can be spread through sexual contact. Now, will that last forever? Hard to say. Maybe not, right? They want that booster cycle to always be coming. Their plan from their side might not include one dose of the vaccine being able to sexually transmit forever. And let's hope that's true. But it also seems pretty clearly true that sex can transmit the vaccine at least in that 60-day window that they're sure that whatever is in that shot is still active in your body and moving throughout your system, which is otherwise known as very safe and effective. Now, in the UK, a government study has revealed that more than 50% of the population has not taken a dose of the experimental gene therapy within the last six months. So that is a major portion of their population rejecting the program. Now, how is that possible, right? We're told that 70, 80, 90% of people were out there getting vaccinated. They had been vaccinated. We have 75% of the country fully vaccinated. Okay, Joe, sure thing. So either that was a complete and total lie that they never had anywhere near that many people vaccinated or they did. And a huge portion of those people have decided that is an experience they will never have again because either they were tricked and they have realized it and they don't want any negative health consequences. They don't want to make their situation any worse or they have experienced those negative health consequences for themselves and are clear-eyed about exactly what's happening, and they are choosing not to make their situation any worse by continuing to participate in the medical experiment. So there was some vaccine talk at the World Economic Forum, and it's always good to get the point of view of the elite global communists. So here is a very, very interesting soundbite from Moderna CEO, Stefan Bensel. Steph knows we are now throwing doses into the garbage. It's, it's sad to say. I'm in the process of throwing 30 million doses into the garbage because nobody wants them. Uh, we have a big demand problem. We right now have 
uh, governments, we try to contact not only Seth, who is doing great work with his team trying to get demand into the countries, but also we contacted through the Washingtons in, the embassies in Washington, every country, and nobody wants to take them. And so the challenge we have now is it's a very different situation than we had two years ago. The problem we had two years ago is there was no mRNA capacity in the world, zero. The situation is very different today. Modern has $3 billion of annual capacity. Pfizer has $4 billion doses at $7 billion. And the Chinese don't want the vaccines of mRNA. So if you just take the, just the vac- Chinese population out, you have more than a dose per person. And as we just discussed, the issue in many countries is people don't want vaccines. In the US, people don't want vaccines. Around the world, we have a lot of people who don't want the vaccine, as the Prime Minister and his team are working against. So we don't have a capacity issue around the planet. It is not true. It was true two years ago. It's not true today. And a little hat tip there to Rebel News, who's been doing great coverage of everything in Davos this week. Avi Yamini and Savannah Hernandez are both out there giving great coverage. So the CEO of Moderna is saying that they have had to throw away 30 million doses of the experimental gene therapy because the demand for it has dried up. They tried creating demand by reaching out to the embassies of countries all across the world, their embassies in Washington, and trying to find takers for their product, and no one wants it. I don't know how else anyone could read that, aside from there has been a mass awakening about, quote-unquote, vaccines. That should tell you that all the marketing of vaccines All of the child-brained communists posting about how they're vaccine-boosted, how their COVID would have been much worse if they weren't vaccine-boosted. They may have the illusion of some majority, but there is no majority. People are not getting vaccinated because they know what the vaccines do. He's bragging about how they've built up the capacity to deliver 7 billion doses per year. More than a dose per person for everyone on the planet, with China excluded, obviously. And they can't find any takers, so they're throwing the vaccine away. Now, are they throwing the vaccine away because it has spoiled? Did it expire? Who paid for the vaccines in the first place, right? Because all of this stuff is done on contract. They have contracts with all these countries across the world. You can imagine that taxpayer dollars, if not ours, then someone else's were spent on all those vaccines that were just thrown away. We also have these pharma companies reaping massive profits, selling a product they admit no one wants. So how does that work? Well, that works beautifully in a communist system because they're getting paid to complete their part of the agenda. And it is totally removed from the profit model. And for a long time, we have been told that that is the exact purpose of all of the regulations that we have in place across all sorts of industries. It's that if the corporations only have the profit model and aren't regulated, they will make dangerous products that they can nonetheless sell. And they'll destroy lives and destroy the environment because of their greed. They're only after profit. They don't care about the consequences. That is why we need massive regulatory bureaus, 
huge bureaucracies to make sure that these corporations aren't endangering the public. And that amounts to essentially the government saying you're allowed to make money if you play by our rules. And that situation grows even more tenuous when the government has not only a stake in the profits, but via the WHO and the World Economic Forum and other international bodies, they are also pursuing the same agenda as the people they are regulating. And all of that is the priority. The priority is not a true market-driven profit model. So the very problem that regulations are supposed to be solving is being caused because the regulatory agencies are totally opaque. There's no public transparency at all. The regulatory industries are funded by the companies they're meant to be regulating. So rather than the profit model and corporate greed causing the dangers, the dangers are present and part of the agenda that is supported by the pharma company, by the regulator, and by the government. The profit model is removed. Now the danger is created and the company is unaccountable. So congratulations once again, commies, one step closer to utopia. Now, this is Gabriella Butcher or Boucher. I mentioned her the other day when I was discussing Oxfam and the study they had done showing that one new billionaire was created every 30 hours for the last two years. While roughly a million people in the world fell into extreme poverty at the same rate. And she is sitting on the same panel with the Moderna CEO, Bansell. And I was surprised the other day to see that Oxfam had released that study because it's sort of antithetical to the way they all want to present themselves. But check out this clip. In the second half of this clip, you're going to hear exactly what they're doing. And it is astounding. In billionaires has been, you know, unprecedented during the pandemic. And there's been several sectors where that has been mostly concentrated. And one is, in fact, the pharma sector, because COVID has been one of the most um, profitable products ever. So that's um, uh, one point to discuss. In, and our report out today is called Profiting from Pain. How th those delays in in making this technology available and um, really having people vaccinated early has contributed to that. But has also, as was said earlier, it's not only the direct health um, impacts, but it's the economic, social um, impacts on all parts of the population. And in reality, an increase in inequality, reversing the trend of the last few years where you know, inequality had reduced between rich countries and poor countries. Unfortunately, now it has widened. And, and the, the statistic we're saying is every 30 hours, um, a new billionaire was minted during the pandemic. So she mentions the billionaires. She mentions the problem of increasing poverty and increasing inequality. And then she twists it. She's talking about the pharma billionaires with pharma billionaires on the stage. How is she going to get away with it? Right. She goes immediately and says, if only these vaccines had been available at the beginning, 
Maybe we could have prevented all these problems. So the pharma billions are actually justified. This disease just sprung up into the world. Someone needed to save everybody. And whoever that was, was surely going to profit. She's making it sound like the pharma industry has done a wonderful job all along. And because they have done such a great job, it turns out that they're the ones who reap the reward. The downside, though, is due to other factors. So it's not the pharma billionaire's fault. In fact, it's no billionaire's fault. It is just a sad reality about the world that COVID happened. It destroyed economies. It pushed hundreds of millions of people into extreme poverty. It separated people from their jobs. It increased drug abuse, alcohol abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, child abuse, depression, anxiety, and feelings of isolation. But none of that could have been prevented. Now what we need to do is increase the amount of communism so that we can help all these people. It's funny in that clip that she actually said COVID-19 has been one of the most profitable products ever. Now, is that some kind of Freudian slip? COVID-19, we are told, is a virus that came from bats. Now, obviously, that's not at all true, but it certainly has never been described publicly as a product. And you might say, okay, well, sure, she was talking about the COVID-19 vaccine. She just left that word out. Maybe, maybe. But is that the only product that generated revenue for pharma companies during COVID-19? No, of course not. They forced people to take remdesivir, and that was incredibly expensive and incredibly profitable because remdesivir actually isn't good for anything. And they knew that prior to recommending it. And for that whole discussion, I would direct you to Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book, The Real Anthony Fauci. Also on the subject of disintegrating COVID myths, this is from the Daily Mail today. Were fears about asymptomatic COVID spread overblown? Infected people without symptoms are two-thirds less likely to pass the virus on. Study finds. And that Kind of sounds like we are two thirds of the way to admitting that asymptomatic spread does not exist. But I guess we'll see. Fears about silent spreaders of COVID who suffer no symptoms but can pass the virus to others may have been overblown. A study of nearly 30,000 people has found asymptomatic carriers are about 68% less likely to pass the virus on than those who get sick. Number 10, and they mean 10 downing, used concerns about asymptomatic spread to justify forcing Britons to obey lockdowns and wear masks. They were thought to account for up to a third of all infections, and many scientists claimed asymptomatic patients were just as infectious as the sick. But a new global study spanning 42 countries, including the UK and the US, found they were only responsible for as little as 14% of cases. And of course, we'll find out more about that as well. An asymptomatic carrier is just someone who tests positive for COVID on tests that don't work. They also estimate that their overall risk of passing the virus to someone else 
about two thirds lower. Scientists claimed COVID's ability to spread asymptomatically was one of the reasons for harsh social curbs. During one of the national lockdowns in January 2021, the government said about a third of people with COVID had no symptoms and urged people to act like you've got it. Experts analyzed data from 130 studies from 42 countries. They involved 28,426 people who caught COVID between April 2020 and July 2021. Of these patients, nearly 12,000 had an asymptomatic infection, having tested positive on a PCR, but having suffered no symptoms. And again, they're called asymptomatic carriers, but all they are is people who tested positive on a test that doesn't work. All of the studies included the results of community screening programs, contact tracing, and investigations into specific outbreaks, like on cruise ships. They found the secondary attack rate, how likely people infected with COVID are to pass the virus to others, was 68% lower for asymptomatic cases compared to those with symptoms. And again, they are assuming that the next case they test because that person was close to the asymptomatic positive tester, that it was transferred from one person to the next. And all that implies is correlation and not necessarily causation. Scientists also estimated that between 14 to 50% of the COVID infections were asymptomatic. So the scientists who are wrong about everything are probably totally right about this. They said the range was so high due to the differences in the methodologies of the studies they drew data from. So basically, they don't know. The scientists don't know. Follow the science, trust the science, even once it's proven that the scientists don't know. And the thing is, their errors always go in the same direction. COVID is more dangerous. Things that they know won't help are said to help. Social distancing, lockdowns, masks, the experimental gene therapy, remdesivir, ventilators. None of those help. All of them are harmful. And yet all of them were recommended by the experts, by the scientists, by the people on television. Now, again, thank goodness for all the good scientists out there who have been working against all of this narrative. But when the television tells you to trust the scientists and trust the experts, all they're really saying is trust the industry and trust the regulators, which eventually means trust the government, the government that is wholly illegitimate, the government that seized power in a fraudulent election. A government who is executing the agenda for global communism expressed at the World Economic Forum by the very people who are profiting off of all of this. Now, changing subjects without a segue, let's go to the Atlantic. This is global communist neocon darling Ann Applebaum. The expression off ramp has a pleasing physicality evoking a thing that can be constructed out of concrete and steel. But at the moment, anyone talking about an off-ramp in Ukraine, and many people are doing so in governments, on radio stations, in a million private arguments, is using the term metaphorically, referring to a deal that could persuade Vladimir Putin to halt his invasion. 
Some believe that such an off-ramp could be easily built if only diplomats were willing to make the effort, or if only the White House weren't so bellicose. It's a nice idea. Unfortunately, the assumptions that underlie that belief are wrong. The first assumption is that Russia's president wants to end the war, that he needs an off-ramp, and that he is actually searching for a way to save face and to avoid, in French President Emmanuel Macron's words, further humiliation. It is true that Putin's army has performed badly, that Russian troops unexpectedly retreated from northern Ukraine, and that they have, at least temporarily, given up the idea of destroying the Ukrainian state. They suffered far greater casualties than anyone expected, lost impressive quantities of equipment, and demonstrated more logistical incompetence than most experts thought possible. But they have now regrouped in eastern and southern Ukraine, where their goals remain audacious. They seek to wear down Ukrainian troops, wear out Ukraine's international partners, and exhaust the Ukrainian economy, which may already have contracted by as much as half. And it's, again, important to remember that none of what she just said about the state of play militarily is true by any measure. Buoyed by oil and gas revenues, the Russian economy is experiencing a much less severe recession than Ukraine. Shocking. Unconcerned by public opinion, the Russian army seems not to care how many of its soldiers die. For all of those reasons, Putin may well believe that a long-term war of attrition is his to win, not just in southern and eastern Ukraine, but eventually in Kyiv and beyond. Certainly, that's what Kremlin propagandists are still telling the Russian people. On state television, the Russian army is triumphant. Russian soldiers are protecting civilians, and only Ukrainians commit atrocities. With a few minor exceptions, no one has prepared the Russian public to expect anything except total victory. And again, just bizarro world nonsense. The Russian military victory is nearly complete and absolutely unavoidable. The atrocities are provably being committed by, quote unquote, Ukrainians, which is really just Ukrainian Nazis and foreign mercenaries. Russian soldiers are protecting civilians, they are feeding civilians, and they are also providing medical care for prisoners of war who they have captured, many of whom are Ukrainian Nazis from Mariupol. We talked about that last week. The third assumption is that this Ukrainian government or any Ukrainian government is politically able to swap territory for peace. To do so would be to reward Russia for invading and to accept that Russia has the right to kidnap leaders, murder civilians, rape women, and deport anybody it chooses from Ukrainian territory. What Ukrainian president or prime minister can agree to that deal and expect to stay in office? <laughs> yeah. Volodymyr Zelensky, the comedic actor who won 70% of the vote in a very safe and secure election, is concerned about his electoral prospects. He needs to keep the war going so that he can be reelected. It is politically untenable for him to admit defeat and cede territory. Unbelievable. It's also funny that she's pretending Ukraine has some other option. 
Russian cruelty also means that any territory that is temporarily ceded will sooner or later become the source of an insurgency because no Ukrainian population can promise to endure that kind of torture indefinitely. And we've all heard about the Crimean insurgency that's been going on since the Russians took Crimea. Oh, no, wait, we haven't. That's not a thing that's happening, which means Ann Applebaum is making this up. Also, the territory in question has already been the location of an ethnic civil war waged on ethnic Russians and Russian speaking people in the Donbass by Ukrainian Nazis at the behest of the global communists and the comedic actor. Already, guerrillas in the city of Melitopol, occupied since the first days of the war, claim to have killed several Russian officers and carried out acts of sabotage. An underground is emerging and occupied Kursan that will appear in other places too. To concede territory for a deal now will simply set up another conflict later on. The end of one kind of violence will lead to other kinds of violence. So you see that? You gotta keep the violence going. This does not mean the war can or should go on forever or that diplomacy has no place at all. Nor does it mean that Americans and Europeans should be blind to the real challenges that a long conflict will pose to Ukraine. The Western coalition backing Kyiv could certainly fray the wave of adrenaline that has so far propelled the Ukrainian army and leadership could crash. Ukraine's economy could grow worse, making the fight much harder or even impossible to sustain. But even so, off-ramp remains the wrong metaphor and the wrong goal. The West should not aim to offer Putin an off-ramp. Our goal, our end game, should be defeat. In fact, the only solution that offers some hope of long-term stability in Europe is rapid defeat, or even, to borrow Macron's phrase, humiliation. In truth, the Russian president not only has to stop fighting the war, he has to conclude that the war was a terrible mistake, one that can never be repeated. More to the point, the people around him, leaders of the army, the security services, the business community, have to conclude exactly the same thing. The Russian public must eventually come to agree too. Except none of that is ever going to happen. And Ann Applebaum surely knows this. Henry Kissinger knows this. Ann Applebaum thinks that she is Braveheart or something. She is giving the rallying cry, for World War III. That is what she is doing with this article. Defeat could take several forms. It might mean military. The White House should now increase not just the level, but the speed of its assistance to Ukraine. It should provide the long-range weapons needed to take back occupied territory, and perhaps also assistance with quicker distribution of those weapons. Defeat could be economic, taking the form of a temporary gas and oil embargo that finally cuts Russia off from the source of its income, lasting at least until the war ends. Defeat could involve the creation of a new security architecture, one based on new kinds of security guarantees for Ukraine, or even some type of NATO membership for Ukraine. Whatever form that takes, it has to be substantially different from the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, in which Ukraine was offered security assurances that meant nothing at all. 
Defeat could also include broader sanctions, not just on a few select billionaires, but on the entire Russian political class. The Anti-Corruption Foundation, led by the jailed Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, has drawn up a list of 6,000 bribe-takers and warmongers, that is, politicians and bureaucrats who have enabled the war and the regime. The European Parliament has already called for sanctions on that group. If others follow, maybe some in the ruling elite will finally be persuaded to start looking for new jobs or at least start talking about how to make changes. Now, if I was an Applebaum, I would be a little worried about promoting lists of bribe takers and warmongers. An Applebaum would be on that list if one were made, as would many of the writers at The Atlantic, including David Frum and The Atlantic's editor, Jeffrey Goldberg. Although saying so is considered undiplomatic, the American administration clearly knows that the defeat, sidelining, or removal of Putin is the only outcome that offers any long-term stability in Ukraine and the rest of Europe. Yeah, because Putin is never going to bow to the global communists, and the global communists cannot complete their agenda without all of the powerful and resource rich nations of the world. And like any sort of victory in Ukraine, that option is already off the table. The global communists have failed. The project is irretrievably ruined. That is why we are playing out the dramatic end stage of all of this. Putin said Joe Biden in March cannot remain in power. In April, Lloyd Austin said that he hoped to see Russia weakened to the degree it can't do the kinds of things that it has done in invading Ukraine. Both of these statements by the American president and his defense secretary were treated as gaffes or as policy mistakes, thoughtless remarks that might irritate the Russians. In truth, they were half-articulated acknowledgments of an ugly reality that no one wants to confront. Any ceasefire that allows Putin to experience any kind of victory will be inherently unstable because it will encourage him to try again. Victory in Crimea did not satisfy the Kremlin. Victory in Kherson will not satisfy the Kremlin either. And I suppose if you want to connect events, you could say that you could accept an Applebaum's framing, but she's kind of leaving out the big part where Ukrainian Nazis at the behest of the global communists and the comedic actor were waging an ethnic civil war against Russian speaking people in the Donbass. That was kind of the goal of the military operation to secure the independence of the Donbass republics. So rather than seeing this as an extension of Putin's desire to expand into Ukraine, you could see it as a separate response once the same people started attacking ethnic Russians in the Donbass. They're acting like there was no provocation whatsoever and that Putin just decided to invade because he wants more land. Putin's objectives, once again, have always been clear. Keep Crimea. Secure the independence of the Donbass. Make sure Ukraine does not join NATO or the EU and demilitarize and denazify the Ukrainian regime. He is accomplishing those goals. He is not being stopped in any of them. And there is absolutely no reason 
for him to even consider sacrificing the completion of any of those goals. And people like Ann Applebaum know this, but they need to convince people that there is still some reasonable goal that they can understand and accept so that the corruption and criminality in Ukraine can be hidden and so that it can continue. I understand those who fear that confronted with an impending loss, Putin will seek to use chemical or nuclear weapons. I worried the same at the start of the war, but the retreats from Kiev and Kharkiv indicate that Putin is not irrational after all. He understands perfectly well that NATO is a defensive alliance because he has accepted the Swedish and Finnish applications without quibbling. He literally turned off Finland's gas. His generals make calculations and weigh costs. They were perfectly capable of understanding that the price of Russia's early advances was too high. The price of using tactical nuclear weapons would be far higher. They would achieve no military impact, but would destroy all of Russia's remaining relationships with India, China, and the rest of the world. There is no indication right now that the nuclear threats so frequently mentioned by Russian propagandists going back many years are real. Yeah, that's right. There's no indication that there are real threats about nuclear activity from Russia. And so she shifts that threat to Russian propagandists. Well, what do Russian propagandists have to do with whether or not the nuclear threat is real? In fact, the only reason to believe that the nuclear threat from Russia is real is that the Western media keeps repeating it. Western propagandists, global state media. By contrast, a true defeat could force the reckoning that should have happened in the 1990s, the moment when the Soviet Union broke up, but Russia retained all of the trappings and baubles of the Soviet empire, its UN seat, embassies, diplomatic service, at the expense of the other ex-Soviet republics. The year 1991 was the moment when Russians should have realized the folly of Moscow's imperial overreach, when they should have figured out why so many of their neighbors hate and fear them. But the Russian public learned no such lesson. Within a decade, Putin, brimming with grievances, had convinced many of them that the West and the rest of the world owed them something and that further conquests were justified. Again, that is just a complete revisionist history. Military loss could create a real opening for national self-examination or for a major change, as it so often has done in Russia's past. Only failure can persuade the Russians themselves to question the sense and purpose of a colonial ideology that has repeatedly impoverished and ruined their own economy and society, as well as those of their neighbors for decades. Yet another frozen conflict, yet another temporary holding pattern, yet another face saving compromise will not end the pattern of Russian aggression or bring permanent peace. And so the solution for Ann Applebaum is to achieve permanent peace through permanent war. What a genius. Now, Ann Applebaum is quite clearly a shill for the global communist order, and that's fine. But let's think about what she's really doing here. She is explaining why the cause is still righteous and justified, even while her allies, the people who actually have decision-making power in her movement, are moving away from the Ukraine narrative, but they can't just let it go completely. They can't admit defeat. They can't admit that 
the goals they had were always unachievable, that Putin has held only a dominant position where he is the author of the action on the ground, because that would be too upsetting for all the child brains who have followed along obediently the entire time. The worst possible outcome for the Ukraine narrative would be for everyone who supported it, who supported Ukrainian Nazis, who denied the existence of bioweapons programs. All of those people who have committed themselves morally and intellectually to standing up for this hideous cause to realize that all of that was for nothing, that victory was never an option, that the cause is not righteous. It is not just. And that they have been lied to the entire time on purpose. And finally, I want to touch on the China and Taiwan situation. And I want to illustrate that with two competing articles about the exact same story. Okay. This is from the Daily Mail today. U.S. does not support Taiwan independence. Blinken cleans up Biden's comments in speech saying America doesn't want another Cold War with Beijing and slamming Xi Jinping for cooperating with Putin and being more aggressive abroad. Secretary of State Antony Blinken issued a stark warning Thursday morning that the threat of China will test U.S. diplomacy like nothing we've ever seen before, but insisted America does not want another Cold War and does not support Taiwan independence. He also said in the speech at George Washington University that China's cooperation with Vladimir Putin after his invasion of Ukraine raises alarm bells. Beijing under Xi Jinping has been more repressive at home and more aggressive abroad and accused the Communist Party of trying to undermine global order. Blinken laid out the Biden administration's policy towards China after the president raised eyebrows by saying the U.S. would get involved militarily if there was an invasion of Taiwan. It marked what seemed to be a more aggressive stance toward defending Taiwan and the one China that the U.S. has recognized since the Cold War. The secretary of state said the U.S. approach to Taiwan has not changed for decades and the U.S. does not support independence. However, he did say that he opposes any changes to the unilateral status quo and said China is engaged in, quote, increasingly provocative rhetoric and activity related to Taiwan. On Taiwan, our approach has been consistent across decades and administrations. As the president has said, our policy has not changed. The United States remains committed to our one China policy. We do not support Taiwan independence. China is the only country with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to do it, Blinken said in the speech at George Washington University outlining U.S.-China policy. Beijing's vision would move us away from the universal values that have sustained so much of the world's progress over the past 75 years, Blinken added. But we will defend and strengthen the international law, agreements, principles, and institutions that maintain peace and security, protect the rights of individuals and nations, and make it possible for all countries to coexist. We must defend and reform rules-based international order, Blinken said. The foundations of the international order are under serious and sustained challenge. 
Under President Xi, China has become more repressive at home and more aggressive abroad. The secretary underscored that the U.S. was focused on international order and not sparking up a new Cold War. We aren't looking for a conflict or a new Cold War. To the contrary, we're determined to avoid both. But, he added, we cannot rely on Beijing to change its trajectory. China is also integral to global economy. Put simply, the United States and China have to deal with each other for the foreseeable future. Blinken also brought up the detention camps in the Xinjiang region and accused China of violating the UN Charter and Human Rights Declaration by their actions in Tibet and Hong Kong. The U.S. stands with countries and people around the world against the genocide and crimes against humanity happening in the Xinjiang region, where more than a million people have been placed in detention camps because of their ethnic and religious identity. He also said China is taking advantage of the openness of our economies to spy, to hack, to steal technology, and know how to advance its military innovation and entrench its surveillance state. So basically, this is a very highbrow and elongated walk back of what Biden said quite clearly the other day. I mean, he mumbled through it, but it was clear what he meant. He answered very directly, yes, when asked if the U.S. military would get involved if China invades Taiwan. And you might ask yourself, how could China invade Taiwan in the eyes of someone who does not recognize Taiwan's independence. If Taiwan is part of one China, then Taiwan cannot be invaded by China any more than South Dakota could be invaded by the U.S. military. Now, of course, there is a dystopian hellscape where the United States military could act against South Dakota, but that would be civil war. That wouldn't be an invasion. Now, with that in mind, this is from China Daily, which, according to Wikipedia, is a daily newspaper owned by the publicity department of the Chinese Communist Party. So it is Chinese Communist Party state media, according to Wikipedia. Now, there's an article in The Atlantic from 2013 that simply describes it as China's largest English language daily news outlet. So which one is it? Anyhow, this is an editorial from the director of the Institute of Taiwan Studies at Beijing Union University, which, of course, is also a Chinese government institution. I am sharing this for the alternate perspective. Despite U.S. bid, Taipei's push for independence doomed to failure. Some conservative forces in the United States that intend to use the Taiwan question to check China's rise and the ruling Democratic Progressive Party's attempt to split the island from the motherland pose a serious threat to China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. On May 5th, the U.S. Department of State revised the Taiwan fact sheet on its website by adding vague clauses to U.S.-Taiwan relations and its stance on one China sparking suspicion on Washington's stance on the Taiwan question. Worse, answering a question at a news conference with Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida on the sidelines of the so-called Quad Conference in Tokyo on Monday, U.S. President Joe Biden said China is, quote, flirting with danger, end quote, 
over the Taiwan question and vowed to intervene militarily to protect the island if it is attacked, which was a gross violation of the one China principle that forms the basis of Washington Beijing relations. Although Biden, on his first tour of Asia as U.S. president, prefaced his remarks saying U.S. policy toward Taiwan has not changed, he contradicted the longstanding U.S. policy in the region. But within minutes, the State Department started walking back on Biden's remarks. Nevertheless, this is not the first time Biden has said the U.S. would defend Taiwan if it is attacked. So despite the State Department's statement later that the U.S. is still committed to the one China principle, Biden's remark will send a wrong signal to secessionist forces on the island, shaking the cornerstone of peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits. It could also lead to severe consequences. For a long time, the U.S. has been saying it does not support Taiwan independence. Compliance with the three U.S.-China joint communiques, which clearly stipulate one China is the foundation of stable Sino-U.S. relations, can play a key role in maintaining peace and stability across the straits. Yet, along with Biden's remarks, the U.S. State Department's update on the Taiwan question has shown the U.S.'s two faces. Now, I want to back up for just a second because this author was just talking about how Biden's repetition of the idea that the U.S. will defend Taiwan militarily could spur the secessionist forces on the island. And what I read in that is that these comments and this stance directly could cause unrest in Taiwan because there is an implied promise that the U.S. has the backs of what he's referring to as secessionist forces. Now, Ukraine was also told that the U.S. would have its back. That has proven to be false. And it's at least possible that that's because Biden doesn't have the ability to do any of this. But what this is hinting at is that that social upheaval may be the point of all this. They want to escalate a new dramatic situation in Taiwan that they can express as an issue of sovereignty, protection of the citizens, something existential about how the world is going to operate in the future. And I imagine they'll go right down the list as they did in Ukraine. State Department spokesman Ned Price said that, quote, we regularly do updates on our fact sheets. And while some of the wording may have changed, quote, our underlying policy has not changed. In particular, Price stressed that we do not support Taiwan independence, and we have repeatedly made this clear both in public and in private, but facts belie his claim. The State Department's fact sheet revision can be interpreted by secessionists on the island as U.S. political support and encourage them to more aggressively seek independence. Therefore, to defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity, China will have to step up efforts to deter the pro-independence forces on the island, and the U.S. would be to blame for any conflict that breaks out between the two sides of the straits. Biden's remark and the State Department's move will undermine Sino-U.S. relations. The U.S.'s recognition that Taiwan is a part of China is the political foundation for the two countries' diplomatic ties and the political basis for Washington and the island to engage in unofficial economic and cultural exchanges. 
But of late, the U.S. administration has ramped up efforts to be provocative on the one China principle and pave the way for Taiwan to join international organizations and help the island to take part in international affairs as an independent entity. Washington's support for the island to take part in this year's World Health Assembly, the World Health Organization's decision-making body, is the latest provocative move against Beijing. Now, that is very interesting. We've covered the World Health Organization and the World Health Assembly and the new set of international health regulations they meant to impose. They wanted to supersede the sovereignty of all these nations and institute policies directed by the World Health Organization. Isn't it interesting that they were trying to get Taiwan to join in that effort. That would, in fact, suggest that they are, for all intents and purposes, treating Taiwan as its own sovereign state, despite their statements. But given China's strong determination to defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity and the support of other countries which uphold justice and play by UN rules, any country trying to split China is doomed to failure. Neither the revision of the Taiwan fact sheet by the State Department nor the island's authorities attempt to collude with outside forces can change the fact that Taiwan is an integral part of China. So I've been saying for at least weeks, but probably months, that we are going to see the same playbook in Taiwan in the near future that we have just seen in Ukraine. And news organizations around the world have reported on a leaked audio from Chinese military describing a plan to invade Taiwan. There have been reports that China plans to do that this fall. And let's think about things in the United States, right? Huge COVID restrictions, destroyed society, really, really bad ideas just implemented across society by Democrat communists and some Republican co-conspirators. But this is certainly not a nationwide policy. And of course, all of that failed spectacularly. And now we are being distracted with war. We are meant to support the illegitimate regime now because we are told the country is at war and we must all unite around our very real president. Is this what's happening in China? The COVID policy in some places implemented in some places, the zero COVID thing, which we are told repeatedly by the global state media is entirely Xi Jinping's doing. All of that has been a disaster. So now we shift focus, shift focus of the people, get the Chinese people all on the same page in promotion of this invasion. And we can see this dog being wagged really from both ends. Maybe the dog has two tails being held by two different people, or maybe one person. They're just holding both dog tails like motorcycle handlebars, and they are wagging the dog interchangeably with both of the tails. But the dog is being wagged nonetheless, because Joe Biden must have one more opportunity to become the hero he has always pretended to be. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!